I'm here with my family. Family. It's a great night to be a tiger. I'm here with my family. My family's been here a long, long time. I'm here with my family. I'm here with my family. I'm here with my family. And we are so excited to be in the great state of Louisiana. Um, decision that um, came about after spending time with my family. I'm here with my family. My Lord, this muggy November weather gives me the horribles. Robert, this here is velvet, not velvetine. A gentleman must learn the difference. My Lord. Time with my family. My family. Spending time with my family. My family. Um, but if I had to predict right now, it'd be 34 LSU, FSU, 21. Welcome to On the Bench. I am your host for today's episode, Brendan Sedone, joined by Zach Blostein and Chris Nee. Uh, one of the three of us was correct in predicting Florida State to be LSU. One of us was mildly wrong, and one of us was loud wrong. Zach, explain yourself. Uh, I was not predicting that Mason Smith would go down with a season-ending injury in the first. All right, he's been muted, Chris. Go ahead, get your get your shots in on him now. He can't say anything to defend himself. I'm, I'm not taking shots at my boy. I'm happy, but mildly wrong or wrong, it doesn't matter. If you're close to the grenade, it's probably going to mess you up. Just going to say that, okay? So, But, hey, this guy picked FSU. Never doubted it for a moment. Hell, I had the gamer written in third quarter, which ticks Sinone off. The the gamer being written in the third quarter didn't have me ticked off. It was your cocky headline that whenever you had it ready to go, uh, FSU would just seemingly fall apart and make the game closer than it needed to be. Uh, you definitely tried to jinx FSU in New Orleans, which was... Yes, my, uh, my headline from 3,000 feet above the field definitely was influencing the play of the game. There's no doubt about it. You're so right, Sinone. Mm, internet kind of cut off a little bit there. Probably karma getting you for being kind of a B-I-T-C-H. All right, so for today's episode, we are going to recap FSU's 24-23 to win over LSU, a remarkable win for the Seminoles, a, a dramatic, fun, uh, incredible environment. FSU fans, uh, give yourself a round of applause for showing out and showing up big in the big easy like the the attendance for the game was great just the people and the atmosphere in the french quarter and off canal street like it was it was awesome for days so a really great environment and it all leads to a a really dramatic and and fun win for fsu uh let's all start off with the block on the bayou uh shaheen brown squeezes through a little crease that was created. We'll get into how, how it occurred, but a Jared verse block field goal earlier in the game sets us up for Shaheen Brown to block the, what would be the game tied extra point with no time remaining. Chris, you're up, you're up hacking away in the press box at that moment. Uh, what did it look like from your vantage point? Well, I mean, we were way up for those that don't understand the press box at Superdome is pretty much at the roof. So you're way on up there. So I'm watching it through binoculars and obviously kind of, 
scope an FSU sideline to see if they're prepping for possibility of overtime versus the actual kick. Uh, you see it happen. I wasn't sure in the initial moment who got it, but it was clear somebody got it. You see it hit the crossbar, but in reality, I didn't notice it actually hit the crossbar until I saw a replay. Uh, but the crowd reaction is what you always kind of go off of. I remember when FSU missed a kick at Miami way back when in the early 2000s, watching Miami fans react is how I knew they actually had missed that kick. It wasn't the kick itself. That was a similar moment for me in the Superdome, watching FSU fans react to what had just happened. Zach, were you crying on TV because you were going to have to owe me a taco for your being so wrong, or what was happening? No, I was just happy that, that the reverse jinx actually worked. You guys, oh, that's fooled. why you did it. Yep, um, that was the plan all, all along. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was. It was crazy. Um, I mean, just that was that was the only way that that kind of game could have ended, right? Like it was just. That fourth quarter was nuts, um, and that just really put the cherry on top with just how crazy the back and forth was um, on those, you know, successive drives. But man, yeah, when that happened, I was, um, you know, I'm an FSU student. Um, I, I keep things objective, but that was that was an awesome moment to see. Did you lose your voice from screaming so much at the TV? Um, no, I lost my voice. I was down in Orlando for the um, <clears throat> Halloween Horror Nights down in Universal. Oh, so you just got scared a lot and screamed? Yeah, I was scared. Ah! Little baby, yeah. Um, the Michael Myers house got me. But uh, no, nah, um, but yeah, it, it, my voice has been on and off for like the last like five days or something like that. It's been bad. But well, we're going to keep, I'm, no, I'm going to keep you having to keep talking and not giving you a chance to like clear your throat or reset here. You mentioned you're a student. Chris is an FSU grad. Uh, you guys are are both emotionally invested in this program as much as you are objective on biased media members. You do still care about the, the school doing well uh, for you, Zach, in your short 22 uh, year old life, uh, where does this rank as the best FSU win? Or let's put it this way. This is the most important and enjoyable FSU win since blank. I mean, probably Miami from last year. Like that okay. was a pretty, like, I mean, that's a rivalry. FSU had not been doing well that year. Um, and it it was a signature win, and it kind of put Miami on a you know obviously they're they're looking better now, but um, basically got their coach fi <clears throat> fired. Um, so that was pretty enjoyable as you know as a student seeing that happen. But I mean, if you're looking at like my lifetime, I mean, 2014 Notre Dame was pretty fun. Um, you know, I mean, obviously 13 was awesome, but but yeah, this is a huge win, um, especially just considering the times and how long it's been since FSU has been nationally relevant. It feels like this, this program is actually on the cusp of like becoming like nationally relevant again. I mean, like they got all that national attention from winning that, you know, primetime game on ABC, the only game on TV that night. Um, and that was just huge. And it's, and we'll talk about the, the implications for recruiting, but um, as far as just the, the impact, I mean, it's one of the um, biggest you know, impact wins I've seen at Florida State since I've been alive. <clears throat> since I've been alive, man, I'm okay. struggling. All right, take it, take it, take a break. Uh, mean for Chris, Chris, same same question to you. Can you contextualize this and and for you, like this is the biggest win in program history? I, I think last year makes sense, Miami, but uh, just the context for this the win and what it means for the program moving forward. I think it's bigger than Miami last year, and I understand the implications of Miami being a rivalry game. FSU last year was obviously trying to crawl massive hole. Reason I think this is more important is a few reasons. One, first time FSU's been 2 0 since 2016. There's something to that. 
Two, I think it's about fan support. Fans showed up. There was 30,000-plus FSU fans in New Orleans. They took over New Orleans. They were loud. They were proud. They were having a great time in the stadium. But FSU reinforced their belief in them by winning that game. And there's something to that. I, I kind of compared it to back in the early days of him making FSU basketball better. Of Every time we would get ranked, we would lose. So like the fan support would go back to the regulars and less of the commoners coming around. When you win, it's sort of proof of concept. People buy in more. There's more fervor for it. That's a great thing. I think it's a great payoff for FSU fans that have, that it happened. But it's also a great payoff for that football team. They busted their backside to get where they were. LSU, they may not say it, but it was circled on the calendar since the minute was put on there after last season ended. And they showed up. They played really well. And they truthfully outplayed LSU for a vast majority of that game and should have beat them by more based on what they actually did on the field. They just sent cash in a couple times, kept the scoreboard a little too close. But in the end, they got the win. It's super significant for them. It's very important. They're 2-0. and Louisville looks very doable at this point, obviously. So you just feel like there is actual real momentum building. And could they be ahead of schedule? It'd be very interesting if that starts happening for us. But we need more to play out before we jump ahead to that part of the story. This has been something we've been tracking for a couple of years now, and that's the the Bobby Bowden quote. Uh, well, well known, I think, by the fan base at this point. It's been talked about and written about, not just by myself, but others on the beat as well. And I've really leaned into it because I think there is, if it is being built the right way, and because FSU doesn't have quite the – the ability to like Georgia, like all of a sudden, like jumpstart something like Kirby Smart on the recruiting trail. Like, yeah, I kind of have to methodically work towards it. If you're building it the right way. It's going to be gradual, steady progression. Maybe not linear game to game, but season to season, it should be improving. And so if, you know, year one is first you lose big, year two is then you lose small. Year three now where Florida State's at, you, you start to win close. And eventually you win and you win big uh, as it should be. Right now, Florida State is in win-close territory, and that was kind of how we were going to judge them through the context of this season was can Florida State take that next step from a, a team that after its 0-4 start last year was winning and losing, was a little bit above 500, uh, and all those games were were close uh, that they were losing, and actually the games they were winning for the most part outside of UMass and, and UNC uh, were pretty close as well. Uh, so now you take that jump up to the next level to start winning close, and I thought that Sunday evening was a great example of a – a team that, frankly, could have won big. Uh, we said that last week or something that I thought if FSU was going to to win, I thought it was a pretty decent chance to be, be, be by double digits, and I thought LSU probably had a better chance to win in a tight game. It almost came to fruition. Florida State tried to kind of give it away. We'll get into that in a minute. But, um, no, Florida State found a way, and I think that shows that there is legitimate growth in terms of uh, the culture of the program. You talk about the special teams plays, multiple blocks, multiple fumble recoveries on special teams, the effort, the grittiness from Jordan Travis, we'll get in there uh, about him certainly in a couple minutes. Uh, there's just a lot of a lot of improvement, incremental growth from last year. I don't think this is a game that Florida State finds a way to win a year ago after they kind of give up uh, some chances to kind of pull away. But uh, they managed to hold on and, and effort and heart, as Mike Norvell said, kind of uh, that that led the day for the Seminoles. So from a contextual standpoint, Zach, as you're watching it, what what about this game? Like you could boil it down to one play, one moment, like we could include the Shaheen Brown block for sure. And what, what gave you the most pride in, in watching this game and, and watching this team's growth? I mean, I, honestly, special teams. Um, if you saw my Twitter feed um, during the game, I was, I mean, I was honing in on that. Obviously FSU kind of started off 
poorly um, with with the kickoff going out of bounds twice, um, and then the missed field goal um, as well. Um, but but then it turned around. I mean, that was really the, the story of the game, right? The two muff punts, um, the two block kicks. Like it just, um, and, and even honestly, like I want to point out, like I know you're going to be happy for this. Why why Rector on on um, you know kickoff return coverage? Man, he was impressive. Um, and it's just that effort, man. Like on special teams, we haven't really seen that in recent years. Um, and, and this staff puts puts so much emphasis on special teams in practice, like an absurd amount. Um, and we're we're finally starting to see that that emphasis pay off um with, with players like Wyatt Rector, who really doesn't have you know a big role in the offense as at, you know at his position at tight end, but he's out there on special teams, you know, busting his behind, trying to you know, make a play. Um, so that was probably the most encouraging thing I saw. Um, obviously, everyone wants to know Jordan Travis's play. We've been telling you all preseason that he looks like a really improved passer. Um, and I think that was put on display on Sunday night. Um, but yeah, that it's more so the effort for me. Um, I think that goes to show that, that the culture is really instilled in this program, that the, the one that Mike Norvell came in here wanting to instill. I think it's, it's starting to show that, that, um, that culture is almost all the way there. For me, it was, was Mike Norvell play calling. I enjoyed, oh, man. Out, I enjoyed the hell out of how he called the game. We're all, there's going to be plenty of complaining about the pitch at the goal line. The guys owned it. It is what it is. They probably won't ever do it again now because after that. But they had set that up after going two straight runs through the middle. They had also had success on pretty much the exact same play earlier in the game. So it is what it is again. There's also the fourth down throw to Pittman. You, you bring in big guys for a reason. Maybe you dial up a different number there where you're throwing. But outside of a couple of plays, I thought he called a marvelous game. Uh, I thought the way they set things up, the way they stayed in front of chains, the way they put themselves in winnable down situations, I, I loved it. And he put Jordan in position to succeed, and he allowed Jordan to do what Jordan can do now, which was awesome to see the coming out party that Jordan had to a degree on a national scale with 260 passing yards, being in con- complete control of the offense. But when that offense gets rolling, when there's a little bit of tempo and rhythm to it and they feel comfortable with what they're doing, it's pretty fun to watch. And this is a year after being a pretty dreadful passing offense. It is no longer that. It is capable of being pretty good. They mix it up. They throw a lot of looks at you. They're going to throw things at you in a couple different variety of ways in the same package, the same movements. They're going to make you guess at times, and they're going to get you when you guess sometimes. It was fun to just watch the chess match, watch it happen in real time. There, there was a legitimate chess match with Mike Norvell and Brian Kelly. Now, unlike the last two years, I think the biggest difference I, I can see in this team, this is on both sides of the ball, Florida State isn't really coaching with a hand tied behind its back anymore. And by that, I mean they have players, they have enough athletes, they have enough depth at key positions to where, yeah, you may be flawed, you, you may not have a talent advantage you know, at each position group. It may not be what Florida State is like in its heyday. Uh, but you're not at a major competitive disadvantage now to where you're just absolutely having to coach around something for an entire game. You can lean on the run game in, in increments. You can have a methodical passing game. It doesn't have to just be explosive. You mix that in there, but you saw, like Chris said, with, with Jordan Travis and Mike Norvell, legitimately like a, a cohesive, uh, symbiotic. Like We saw a coach call a game for his quarterback, for a quarterback he trusted. And I think that was super evident. We'll get into the Jordan Travis play in a bit here. Even on defense, like some of the sub packages they had, some of the personnel things they were able to do, they don't have a glaring weakness at any singular level. 
although some of the play in some some position groups wasn't great. But I think that's a big thing now is we can kind of start as a as a podcast here as a website. You know, last year I would dismiss fellas. You probably remember this. Like I would I would dismiss talking points or decision making uh, topics that fans wanted to talk about sometimes because I just, I thought it was irrelevant. Like really it was about whether Florida state could get enough quality players and develop the program enough to where it could, it could overcome some of its overall deficiencies and to where yeah. we weren't having to coach wide receiver yep. linebacker. Those are mm-hmm. two that it's abundantly clear linebacker play. Daniel's had himself a day. He's quick as hell. He's difficult to get down. I thought linebacker play overall stood up pretty well in that game. Bethune and Deloach were both very good. Deloach had a ton put on his table because he was a spy a great deal in that game. But I thought they handled it well. It's it's an area where FSU is much, much better than they were 12 months ago. And the wide receivers are playmakers now. They're not always consistent still. But, I mean, Johnny Wilson has over 100 receiving yards in five quarters of play. I would put him like 10th on last year's season total uh, for, for, for receiving yards. Uh, Micah Pittman's very solid. And, and so I'm saying all of this to say we, we can kind of now take a step back and and be critical of certain plays or, or be really, uh, you know, really throw praise at decisions and whatnot now too, because I, I think you're, you're now seeing a coaching staff that can kind of coach a team uh, without having to do smoke and mirrors and, and trying to do patchwork stuff on both sides of the ball. You're able to be more aggressive with what Adam Fuller wants to do on defense and get into some of its blitz packages, which were cool. You're able to be more creative on offense now, and you're seeing Mike Norvell call the game that way. Uh, so, so with that in mind, let's talk about a few of the, the plays. So we're going to be generally really positive for this podcast because there's a ton to be excited about. Uh, but let's talk about some of the minutia, the things that were maybe minor uh, play calls that ended up becoming really, really big in the game uh start off with the the most pivotal one to me and that was the toss play outside on third and goal with a, a minute and change left uh lsu had chris was it one timeout or two timeouts left uh at that point one i think i think they had one because they used one at middle of the field when verse had the sack which was their final timeout yeah so so one left so there if you go for it on third down and you don't get it uh, and LSU has to burn his timeout where the clock goes all the way down. You kick a field goal and you go up by two scores. Uh, and your win probability rate at that point is uh, absurdly high. And so they run the toss play. Now, Chris mentioned earlier, it, it's not a traditional toss like this wide. Uh, wide it, it's like a little little pitch. It's not this crazy, like, far-off mark that Jordan Travis has to hit. But it was poorly executed. It was not a good not a good toss. I was behind Treshawn Ward a little bit. And Treshawn Ward, you can see the replay. Like, he takes his eye off the ball and he's looking ahead. Uh, trying to score there and I don't I thought it was in I'll put well I'll get your thoughts on it first Zach and Chris Uh, Zach when you're watching the game uh, what's going through your mind in that moment and did you dislike the play call as much as uh, most of Twitter did I mean obviously I was not happy Um, I like (laughs) not because of the play call just because obviously the outcome of the play Um, I mean for me it's like the chance, like, obviously, I feel like there's a higher chance that if you're pitching the ball, you're, you know, you have a guy that, that has to go and catch it and then run. Whereas if you're handing it off, it's just, you know, a handoff. But like, there's, there's a chance that if you're just handing the ball off too, the guy can fumble. I mean, that happens all the time. I, I didn't think it was egregious. I didn't think it was a horrible play call. But I also don't think it's probably something you, you want to run, especially in that situation. And, Nor- and, my, and Norvell said that. I think he was on, some ESPN show college football live yesterday. Yeah. He was on, he was on that and was talking about the play and they asked him about it. And he said, 
Um, looking back at it, it's not really something that he would he would have done if he got a chance to call it again. So I'm probably in agreement there. I, I, but I wasn't like, why did you call that? Like I, that wasn't my reaction. Um, and and I think Danny Cannell um, tweeted it out. I, I don't know, always agree with his takes, but um, he he was talking about how how um, you know on all the different offenses or whatever that he was on, they always had a a, a pitch play on the goal line. Um, so I don't think it's some egregious call. Um, Chris, what are your thoughts? Uh, he referenced him and work done pulling it off plenty. Danny referenced that Danny, yeah. Cannell. Um, I, you know, I it, just keep it simple. Line the quarterback up, snap it to him, go forward with it. At that point, the clock is as much as what you're playing against as a scoreboard, you know, just don't put yourself in position, but FSU worked on pitches and things of that sort throughout the week. And they always do. It's always been a component of the offense, but they did a lot of stuff in preparation for LSU that involved pitch and pitch concepts. So it's not like they just went into the bag and pulled out a random thing. It is something they put a great deal of work into. They don't fumble that play often. Those two have been very secure with things of that fashion. It's just disappointing that it happened in that moment because now it's so super intensely looked at, but it's funny. I, uh, I, the hater of the Wildcat, actually thought that's not a horrible moment to go Wildcat and you know have Ward follow Lundy and do basically what you did earlier in reverse instead of giving it up. Yeah, I would have done a, a Wildcat for that same exact reason, Chris. Uh, listen, I don't think it was the worst. But certainly not a. I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase it here. Uh, Zach said it well with like it, it wasn't this egregious play call, but I think you're also you are exposing yourself to something that's unnecessary. It's an unforced error. Maybe that's it. It's an unforced error to pitch the ball because uh, it creates one extra element. Like you already have the snap handoff or the, the snap uh, transaction there. Then you add in, Hey, we're then going to, instead of hand it off, we're going to put the ball in the air. I just like keeping it as simple as possible when you're in tight quarters, especially when you're trying to play the clock at that stage in the game. So uh, to Norvell's credit, he said, yeah, you know, if that goes in for a touchdown, Everyone's saying it's a great call and it worked twice in the game. If it doesn't happen the way it just did, uh, then you know it, it puts us at risk. So I think minimizing risk in the in the future makes sense for this coaching staff uh, in that specific situation. Uh, another decision that deserves uh, some some focus to talk about here and got some criticism uh, was a fourth down decision late in the second half that was off of the Wyatt Rector recovery off the muff punt. And FSU's in pretty good chance with about a little bit, I think fewer than two minutes left, between a minute and two minutes left in the half to go and, and put up a, a touchdown uh, and take a multi-score lead there. And Jordan Travis throws it to Micah Pittman, kind of a fade, uh, more of like kind of a, a corner pattern. And, uh, and Micah Pittman can only get one hand on it, can't bring it in. It's an incompletion. Uh, so FSU leaves that situation in which they weren't expecting to get any points uh, a few plays before they be, they go aggressive. They leave with no points. Uh, Chris, you mentioned that the decision in your mind wasn't necessarily uh, poor, more so just the, the actual play call. I love the decision for going for it. your kickers already missed a kick. He also kicked two out of bounds. You know, how do you feel about trusting him in that moment? I get people that say just take the points, but you're also presuming you automatically get the points, which isn't always automatic. I like going for it. I don't necessarily like the idea of throwing that play to Micah in the end zone when you have Johnny, when you have Deuce Span, or even Malik McLean or Kentron, because you have these tall guys for a reason in tight spaces. And we all know that them with Johnny in the red zone is something they've put a boatload of work into in the preseason. 
would have been a nice moment to see it. Johnny's on the opposite side of the field on this play when Micah gets hit. They throw left, Johnny's on the right, and he's well covered on the right. To be, and they to had, be fair, Johnny Wilson did – they went to Johnny in the red zone on the play later. Yeah, I think it was later in the game, right? Was it later? And, uh, yeah, and he, I, yeah. I think so. And, and it was a pretty well placed ball, and he just didn't come down with it. Yeah, yeah. And, P- uh, and this ball to Pittman I, was well placed. It was outside. Like this was not a poor. It was it was fairly well executed. I, I thought it could have been a pi potentially. Like it wasn't egregious, but you know Pittman and him and the cornerback got in a little bit of a, a slap match, and Pittman was only able to get one hand on it. Like that that really changes the the play. I completely like going for it. You're trying to seize control. You get ball first the next half. LSU's playing against the clock if you do not execute it there. I have no issue with the decision to go for it. Play call, maybe you do something a little bit different. But, you know, Mike Norvell knows how to call plays. I'm not going to over-criticize that. What was your takeaway from it, Zach? Yeah, I agree. I think I would have – that's the decision I would have gone. I don't think you trust your kicker in that moment after what happened in that first half. Um, And that's what I was trying to – kind of express I think in the thread was that like people are like oh just take the points well like you said Chris like is it a sure thing that you get the points if you if you elect to kick it I know it's a short field goal but um I don't like he Ryan Fitzgerald did not have a lot of confidence in that first half um so yeah I mean it's it just comes down to the play call I, I said this I think that ball should have gone to Johnny Wilson obviously Johnny had to play it um later in later in the game like we referenced where he it was, it was a drop. Um, I, I think, I don't know if that's on the stat sheet, but my opinion was a drop. I think, you know, there was two defenders coming at him. Um, he went to go grab the ball. He was kind of wary of, of, of getting hit. Um, but yeah, I think even if it's, I, I, I mean, I like that play to like a Malik McLean or a Kentron. Obviously Kentron didn't get as many snaps, but like, like Malik McLean's like a starting receiver for you. So like, I don't know, he's got speed. And I, and I think that's a, a play that we've seen him, seen Jordan Travis and him complete in practice. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would have just liked to see a different um, play call or just different usage of the personnel on the field at, at that time. It, it's worth noting that it was fourth and two at the LSU eight. So you didn't have to score a touchdown. Sure. It wasn't, to, it wasn't goal to go. Yeah, like, if it was to goal. Um, so that, that is something to take into account. Uh, you had the one-on-one though. And that's ultimately like, that goes back and we'll, we're going to, talk about the offense and, and and whatnot next there was a lot of one-on-ones that they set up and you they won some of them they lost some it was at a much higher conversion rate than it had been uh in past years with this program so that's encouraging but yeah at, at the play call like i'm fine micah Pittman is probably your most complete wide receiver uh he's certainly one of the most experienced guys and you had him one-on-one in space and you got him like with a lot of space to operate considering the, the tight quarters so i was i was fine with the actual play call and the decision to go for it guys it was the right call. Uh, just FSU. So this is per someone shared it on our message board. It's a great little uh, follow on Twitter. If you're interested at, at AIS sports underscore fourth, it's a CFB fourth down bot. So this has the the math and the situation and whatnot. Uh, the FSU win percentage. If FSU attempted a field goal was 65% at that point in the game uh, for FSU to go for it. And that's just the decision to go for it. That's not even if you make it, uh, it was 69, nice percentage. So uh, just going for it gave you a higher chance of winning. Now the success rate typically in that situation is at 51% if you go for it, uh, 90% success rate at kicking, but you're running like beyond just numbers at that point. Like is is your kicker in a good headspace right now? Uh, and if FSU were to uh, go for it and fail, it was a 
60% win percentage. And if it failed and going forward uh, with the field goal and, and missing, excuse me, uh, your win percentage is at 59%. Your succeed percentage, though, uh, if or your win percentage if you succeed and go for it, 78%. Your win percentage if you succeed on a field goal attempt was only 66%. So you had a chance to uh, basically a chance to your win percentage to go up to 78% in the first half, which is incredible. Like FSU was in the 70% win probability rate for a good chunk of the second half. Uh, it was would have been even higher uh, if you'd been able to convert on that. But just the the idea of what was potentially available to you to really blow the game open. Remember, you're going to get the ball back uh, in the second half to start off the second half. Like that was all on the table for Florida State if you hit it there. Uh, sorry, that was clunky for me to read all the numbers like that. I'll, I'll figure out a better way to do that next time. It is a good follow on Twitter, however. So let's talk about the offense and, and what stood out uh, in the 24-point performance for the Seminoles. There was only, I think, nine drives that FSU had so it was a pretty shortened game in that regard I think some of that Chris was by design like they they kept the ball on the ground a ton when they uh, if they had their druthers that wasn't to say that they couldn't throw the football but they certainly tried to to play under control uh and were very calculated on when they took their shots I think that's one of the first things that stands out to me let's say you FSU was quick to the line but they weren't always quick to snap mm-hmm. so I thought they kept LSU kind of in that tempo mode but they also they would take their time pre-snap, a lot of clock to drain. A lot of uh, – I thought something FSU did super effectively in the game was if you look, they take two sacks but for zero yards, limited the amount of tackles for loss. If you watch the replay of it or even if you watch it in real time and caught this, they can, can uh, textually basically every single chance they had, they worked forward. So if there's pressure, Jordan would work forward. He wouldn't – Usually if he extended, he would extend flat or he would extend forward. He never went back. He didn't get into the high school syndrome of popping and trying to make things happen. They were very smart that if they were going to take a negative play, it was going to be for minimal yardage to give themselves a chance to succeed down after down after down. A lot of first downs created second and short, created third and shorter, created success. When they got stuck in third and long, they had a very high success rate, which is just impressive. It speaks to dialing up the right plays, putting yourself in position, also setting things up with prior play calls. Uh, I just thought offensively they were really, really good. I know they didn't run the ball great. I think that's more credit to LSU's defense being capable, especially in the front front part, portion of it, the front four mainly. Um, even without Mason Smith, that was still a very good front four. B.J. Ojolari was very, very good early on, impacting stuff, things of that sort. So I'm not concerned about the running game. Also, kudos to the offensive line. Five guys, every snap, whole game. Didn't win them all, lost plenty, but they busted their backsides, and they played really, really hard, and they stayed with it. and. Now, Maurice Smith, who didn't have a whole lot of practice this week, there was one where he he definitely looked like he wasn't feeling real good when he got up. He took a moment. Dylan Gibbons and him spoke. He got set. They went, and they kept doing it. And, you know, Jazz had a couple because he had to step into that role with Bless Harris being unavailable, and Jazz played as hard as he could. He had moments where he got beat up, but he just kept coming back. There is something to the mentality of the offense where they just understand, flush it, next play, keep doing it. But don't put yourself in bad situations. FSU did a good job of not being self-destructive. What really made the offense tick, in my opinion, was Jordan Travis. Like he was so in control of the entire offense. I think he had two bad throws on the day. He had some absolute dimes. Uh, 20 of 32, 260 yards, two touchdowns. That's a pass rating of 151. I think his pro football focus grade was again pretty high, somewhere in the high 80s. Uh, really well done against a pretty talented defense. He also rushes for 31 yards, keeps plays alive. Thought he was really good in the read option game as well. 
Uh, Zach, the the touchdown toss to Ontario Wilson was that the best the best in game pass we've seen J Traff make to date? I think so. I mean, it was just. I mean, that play was dirty by Ali Gay, in my opinion. Oh, my kind of. Oh, I thought you were saying like the throw was dirty. I mean, it, it was nice, but um, but that play filthy. was dirty. Um, filthy. He, uh, yeah, filthy. But he, I mean, he completely launched at him. Literally, didn't even try to tackle him at all. Didn't try and wrap up. Just completely launched at G. Trav. Um, that's like a six foot six dude. Um, and G. Trav stands there, and completes that throw. Obviously, you got to give credit to Pokey. That's an amazing catch. Um, we see Mike Norvell in practice all the time, telling Pokey catch it with two hands. I mean, honestly, just let him do what he wants because apparently he's, <laughs> he's like, amazing at catching with one hand. Yeah, I mean that. I mean the the UF catch from this past year was awesome from Pokey, but that it's just meant so much more, um, especially with them coming out with the win and and that that ball was just. I cannot believe that he, that he put it on the money like that. Yeah, with with the pressure coming in uh, that way, it was really cool. Afterwards, Jordan Travis went up to. Uh, to Ali Gay and gave him like after the game went and gave him dap and basically said it's all it's all good. Uh, the way Jordan is handling himself, his body language before the game, you could tell he was really he was dialed in, but he was also pretty loose and relaxed. And uh, even throughout the game, I thought his body language was great. And Coach Norvell said that at the beginning of the week. Remember, he had that fantastic uh, Tuesday practice, and that was coming off of a really good performance against Duquesne. And I asked uh, I asked Mike about just Jordan Travis's like the way he's carrying himself and and the throws that he's consistently making out in practice. And, and Mike said about J Trav, like this is, that's because like the confidence that he's talking about, it's for real. Like it's been built on. It's not just him feeling good, feeling confident in the exact moment. Like he's living that life constantly. Go, because... go watch his interview from Thursday. Was it Thursday? Yeah. Last week still has me thrown off because of the extra day. We talked to J Trav on Thursday. It, it's mind blowing. Like it's, it's night and day. He's always been a good kid. He's always been enjoyable to talk to. But his ability to publicly speak in front of people, his ability to feel like a comfortable team leader, his ability to go out there and play the game at a high level with a high level of confidence, it's all changed. Watch interviews of him. It's unbelievable. He he is so comfortable with who and what he is now, and it translates entirely to the offense. And he's making throws, attempting throws that he wouldn't even have con- – like the throw he makes to Pokey, there's no chance he makes that two years ago. And even last year as he got progressively better throughout the year, like I don't think – that was something that was consistently in his arsenal. The the bucket throw that he had to Cam McDonald, it's tough to tell from watching like whether it was deflected at the very end, but he puts it in between uh, uh, two DBs, basically. Cam couldn't bring it in, uh, but it, it was just it was so well-placed, and Jordan's operating the offense at such a high level. Uh, and I think it helps that the wide receivers around him are better. Like. Johnny Wilson, big body guy, able to get yards after the catch. 27 yards after the catch is what he was uh, given. Uh, he had three catches for 60 yards. Micah Pittman, 18 yards after the catch. He had three catches for 45 yards. Uh, collectively, Florida State had almost 100 yards after the catch. <laughs> it's, uh, again, it gets a really athletic LSU defense. Uh, but let's give credit to like Pokey Wilson. Seven catches, 102 yards on the night, two touchdown catches. Uh, and that was on just 10 targets. So uh, just a remarkably high Passer ready for Jordan Travis will go in after Pokey. I mean, that was a guy who had to respond to competition. FSU brought in four wide receiver transfers. His reps, his uh, his role in the offense was very much so uh, up in the air. And he was a guy who was told in the offseason, like, he's been really sharp. He, Him, Johnny Wilson, Deuce Spann uh, were the three guys who were brought up to me in terms of just doing really good in, 
in seven on really well in seven on sevens. And uh, all those guys had their moments. Uh, certainly uh, on Sunday, the flea flicker play, Chris, uh, let's go to that. That was, that was a lot of fun. You could kind of break down uh, your vantage point of, of that play. And that was FSU's first touchdown. I love, I love it. That was a, that was a lot of fun to watch. I mean, Micah Pittman throws the extra block at the end of the play to free up, giving Jordan all the time he needs to make that throw. It's it that's a moment that's you know that's a team that's eleven guys coming together to execute a play and score points. The play as a whole was fun. FSU has done a great deal of the jet sweep and around reverse, the kind of looks that we saw a good bit of against LSU. They had done a good bit of that throughout camp. And there were times where end arounds were annoying. Like, dude, Span would get an end around. He wouldn't turn north south. He would stretch it out. He'd only gain like a yard. And I'd sit there like, what a wasted play. But when it's executed, it turns into what a 16, 20 yard for run for Deuce Span. Deuce so had, the, had two of those. He had the 15 yarder and then he had a five yarder later when yeah. they were trying to milk the so clock. So the 15 yarder is an example of one in the preseason where he wouldn't turn north south and you'd sit there and not be happy about. It. But they set those things up. They run them constantly. And it's, it's great that they understand when to dial them up. It's not just a, hey, we're going to go run a trick play. It's we're in a first down situation after running the ball or playing short game. We're going to have the one-on-one. We're going to go here. Or we know that safety is going to look down when we do this double reverse. The safety bit hardcore on the reverse comes downhill. So Pokey's by himself. Pokey did a good job of adjusting on the ball because it did flutter a bit there at the end. But it was fun as heck to watch it be executed. It got the crowd ramped up. That's when you knew that place was ready to party and have a good night. And the jet sweep action Chris is talking about, I think like FSU had six or seven plays built off of it early on. They did a play action uh, with Jay Travers. He's able to get outside the pocket uh, and complete the ball. Uh, I forget to who's he kind of corked it over the middle of the field. I think it was Johnny Wilson coming uh, from like a flood concept sort of, uh, but then they, they actually handed off a couple times. They run some counter off of it. It was, just, it was a really, really thoughtful game plan and, and things were done by the coaching staff, by Alex Atkins and Mike Norvell to, to offset, which was a, a, a tactical disadvantage. Like LSU's defensive line, even with some of the the in-game attrition that they had, uh, the, the defensive line for LSU w- was superior to FSU's offensive line. LSU was like hell-bent on stopping the run, too. They had a lot of run blitzes, uh, and it worked. Like LSU's defensive ha- uh, run stuff rate uh, was 22%. So that yeah, almost a quarter of your running plays were, were stuffed uh, for Florida State. Uh, the offensive line, I, I thought it was really good to see Murray Smith play. I thought he played admirably, given that he hadn't played the previous week against Duquesne. It was it was working back into the lineup. I thought he played well, was was really stabilizing. And that we saw in the game, snapping is indeed important. Uh, LSU lost potentially four points off of it and had to settle for a field goal uh, because of snapping. Uh, Murray Smith was really solid there. I thought Demetri Emanuel was was fairly weak on the on the game. Uh, rewatching it and the PFF stats reflected that too, especially pass pro. Uh, they need to kind of go back to the drawing board and and figure out like who the optimal pieces are in place for them on the offensive line. But again, LSU wanted to take away Florida State's rushing attack. The fact that FSU was able to have some counters in there uh, with with what they were to do with J Traff with some of the read option, and they were able to keep the ball going at a pretty consistent rate through the air. Uh, again, I mentioned JTRF had a 62% completion percentage uh, with three drops going against him too. So that's yeah, probably closer to, to nearly 70%. Everyone catches those. They took a few shots downfield, only hit on a couple of them, but I liked how they were aggressive and getting one-on-ones with the wide receivers. LZUDBs played very, very well and, and covered things well downfield for the most part outside of that flea flicker. 
Uh, but just Jay Trav's ability to work intermediate throws, throw on the run, and just everything was open. Everything was on the table for him. Super cool to see. Uh, and the offense was was pretty successful. Average uh, EPA, expected points added per play, was 0.12, which would have been in the 82nd percentile last year. Success rate per play, again, this kind of goes back to what Coach or uh, what Chris was saying about Coach Norvell's uh, strategy for the game to kind of keep things moving along. A lot of successful plays. Uh, you were basically 48% success rate, which would have been in the 95th percentile last year. So you just kind of methodically keep the ball going, give yourself third and optimal uh, situations. And then when they were in third and long, the last thing I'll say about the offense, when they were in third and long, they went to this empty set a lot out of 11 personnel where they have almost the running backs like a flanker H-back type, whether it's Trayshawn Ward or Lawrence Toa Philly. I think they completed all five or six of those uh, of those empty set passes for first downs. And they did it in a variety of ways. They went over to Cam McDonald the middle a couple of times. They had a little slip screen to the running back on one play. Uh, had this little like underneath crossing pattern to Micah Pittman. It was just, it was really cool to see this chess match, excuse me, chess match between Mike Norvell and, and LSU's defensive staff. And I think FSU got the better of LSU for a majority of the game. Uh, switching to the other side of the ball on defense, uh, Jared Verse probably gets the game ball, right? He had in on two sacks and really forceful against the run. He left some missed opportunities out there as well, where he had a chance to, to take down Jaden Daniels a, a few times. But but Chris, let's start off with Jared Verse and uh, just how impactful he's been for Florida State just through two games. He brings it on every single snap, always, consistently. Even when he you know gets too deep and they pop it outside because contain was lost, he's still all out effort. And there's something to that, that you got to love the way he brings it. And the dude's playing a lot of snaps. He played the most snaps of a defensive end in that game. Correct. And it was in the forties. If I recall correctly, is that right? Snow? That's not, that sounds right off the top of my head. Yeah. So like, you know, he's still bringing it late in that game. I, I really enjoyed watching him. I thought Fabo played a great game. Disappointingly got a little twisted up there on the last drive. Um, I thought interior as a whole had good moments and bad moments, but I thought love. It was pretty good. Consistently. I mentioned the linebackers earlier. Kalen had a ton put on him because he was a spy. Bethune does what Bethune does, which is track the ball really effectively, finish plays when he has the opportunity, consistently in the right spot. I like that. I thought the secondary was a little up and down. I, truthfully, I didn't think Duke Cooper had a very good game. Uh, that a- that last drive, the the go-ahead drive, uh, or not the go-ahead, the, the almost game-tying drive, excuse me, uh, Duke got picked on a little bit for Florida State. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, and Grady Vance is another guy who I still think when he's out there, teams are to some degree deciding to target him intentionally. I think we've kind of seen that through two games. I think that also has been the reality of his career in the college game prior to FSU. So it's going to be interesting as that group continues to evolve. I thought overall, big picture, they did a good job. Uh, you know, Daniels had too much success, but I think they were willing to allow him to be a runner. They didn't want to get beat in the passing game. The disappointing thing is on that last series – you started off really well. I think to complete it back to back to neighbors coming off the goal line to give himself a little breathing room. You're fine with those. They got to run clock. They're not getting big chunks, but you let them, you know, tiptoe it up the line for one. Then Daniels breaks off the big run where you had pretty good pressure. I think they sent three up front. So they dropped essentially eight because you have guys pursuing. So they end up deep down the field. So that just left a lot of real estate for Daniels to run through. And then Mason Taylor has one which was truthfully a pretty nice play design. DeLoach got stuck in the situation of having to play spy and choosing to keep his eyes on quarterback. 
once Taylor went behind him, quarterback could throw it easily to the right of Deloge. It's pretty easy landscape for him to run down the field. And everybody else was basically at the goal line on that play. McClellan did a good job of coming up on that, making him stumble, stopping him a yard short. Obviously, it didn't matter in the end because they still get the touchdown. But overall, defense was good. Plenty to learn from. I'm interested to see how they continue to evolve the prevent late game defensive stuff that they're trying to do. You can't allow 99 yard drive like they did in basically what 80 seconds. They were really soft in coverage as well intentionally for the most part. Uh, were you a, like I understood the the theory. I mean, we would be killing them if they were running press coverage and they allowed like a, a big touchdown run, but it was more like the to me, Chris, like the I want to get your thoughts on on just like that decision to kind of play play fairly soft coverage and kind of throw some prevent stuff in there. Uh but but to me, I want to see if you agree with this. Like, I think that the big issue was just how discombobulated the defense looked and how frazzled they looked. And they had some bad trade-offs in coverage. Tackling was poor at the end of the game. I think that's the thing that has to be corrected. That's on coaching to get that one fixed as, as much in practice coaching as it is in-game uh, management. Yeah, I, I think the ultimate goal defensively was not to allow the big plays. And LSU only had eight what's considered big plays, which is running that was all, more. All game you're talking about? Or more. Uh, all game, yes. Yeah. But they allowed, obviously, I, I think two on the final drive, including the longest run of the game, which was a Daniel scramble, and then the Taylor pass that set up the final play. So you don't want that to happen. I. I just think the prevent situation, obviously, it was a huge topic after the debacle last year with Jacksonville State. It's more, they were more prepared to play goal line, stuff like that in this game. I'm interested in how it continues to morph, what they what they intend to do going forward. The issue there is you're, you don't want to give up a big passing play. But when a guy is as elusive, as athletic as a Daniels, and you're going to face others of that caliber, you're going to have Cunningham, who's pretty equally fast. You're going to have Schrader, a little bit different runner, but still a big threat with his feet. I'm probably forgetting at least one more on the schedule that can do what he does. You're going to have to figure out where the trade-off is. What do you do to keep somebody in the middle of the field to not allow a big play when you do have the pass coverage? Anthony Richardson would probably be a pretty good Yeah, that's certainly another one. Yes. yes. <laughs> he was very, very solid uh, in the opener for Florida. Uh, can you guys explain to me what the hell happened on the second to last play? Like the so Mason Taylor goes down at the one they review it and they show that he was actually, it was very, very, very clear after a long review that he was down before getting out of bounds. Uh, so that would have given one second left with LSU with the clock starting as soon as the whistle blew, uh, whether that would have been one second, like enough time of, of like a full second to where if LSU could have gotten the snap off in time or whether the game would have expired, uh, LSU was able to talk about it and, and have time to go over things. It, I don't understand how that ruling on the field was made. It was very confusing after watching it. Like he was clearly down in bounds. What I clearly, I, I don't know. I mean, I watching it from 3000 feet above, I, I, you know, I thought he was in, I thought clock should be rolling the second I get up all set and they're off of it. You know, and I don't, really see how you get a playoff when everything's happening that fast in reality. The issue is because of the stop, because of the review, and then the explanation to both coaches, and subsequently it took probably ballpark about 10 minutes total. Yeah. It allows everything to get set. It allows the ball to come off to, for there to be the snap and the play to happen. I, I don't know. Like That's an area where I hate that we've overcomplicated the game with review and put ourselves in a position where you know, you're changing the dynamics of how the game is actually supposed to play out. Like, make the call in real time, go with it, 
in play. But that's a whole nother topic for another day. If they overturn the call and they say he was in bounds, then all of a sudden, like the ref says, on once I make the signal, clock is live. You could have enough time to theoretically, right, to like to, to get the snap off and have a play. Yeah, but that's not and, a guarantee. Yeah, but in real time, you're having to hustle to the line. They're getting a ball set, chains moved, right. putting it in action. You're trying to get uh, snap off. Good luck doing it all uh, right without some movement. But yeah, I, I, I understand. Twenty minute timeout. Yeah, you know, that 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 was it. And then uh, FSU ended up taking a timeout, anyways, because it didn't matter at, at that point. The the clock wasn't a factor. Uh, to talk it over and trying to get in the right place. Um, and it, it was poor coverage by Duke Cooper. He allowed it. A, do, you, his... do you think Cooper guessed it was going to the pylon? I, I think he was guessing a lot in that final drive. He was someone who didn't play in the opener against Duquesne and, and clearly not 100%. Uh, he got put in a lot, spin cycle on an earlier play. He, uh, Yeah, he. I think he, he was probably guessing, Chris, because he wasn't 100%. So he was trying to compensate in some way. Uh, but that's like the number one. Like That's like a cardinal sin is you don't allow someone to cross your face inside yeah. the red zone uh, or in the end zone like that. Like you just, you just can't allow it. If they beat you on outside fade, they beat you on outside fade. You can't allow like an easy slant like that. Um, anyways, it, it ultimately didn't matter because uh, I understood how they made the incorrect call in live time. The, uh, the other – the decision to not overturn the play call and to say it stands like uh, that was crazy to me. And that could have impacted the game. Like you may have not never gotten to that, the the touchdown. And then the Shaheem Brown block is something that you don't even need. Uh, last thing on, on defense, I think though, like, as we talk about like what they did, like schematically, like made a lot of sense. Like they, they were two high safeties for a majority of the game. Uh, they forced LSU to drive methodically. Like LSU success rate per play was 52%. That would have been 100th percentile last year. Uh, so they, they were extremely consistent in moving the ball. Uh, but but LSU wasn't really like all that explosive, as Chris mentioned earlier. And I think that was important. The average yards per dropback for LSU was at 5.36 yards. Her drop back that would have been 10th percentile nationally last year, so very poor. And Zach, they they kept your boy uh booty out of basically out of harm's way for majority of the game. He was only targeted six times. He had one drop, he had another like lookout play where I thought he, he made a pretty poor effort on the ball early on. Two catches, 20 yards. That was your whole X like that. I'm being tongue in cheek here, but like your whole like reason for picking LSU was the the explosiveness of its wide receivers and how it matched up against FSU's corners and the most explosive wide receiver on the roster did barely anything. Yeah. I mean, that was the most surprising thing to me other than I feel like FSU's O-line kind of um, did better than I thought handling FSU's D-line. But yeah, I mean, Kayshawn literally had no impact in the game for the first, what, three quarters. Um it was, it was so surprising to me, and it looked like he kind of checked out um, towards the end. And, I mean, that was that was a huge difference in the game. I, I mean, I think it has a lot to do, has a lot to do with scheme. Um, I think Adam Fuller kind of schemed it up that way to try and – I mean, I think that's a, a lot of the reason was why Jaden Daniels was, you know, picking up a lot of the yards on the ground is because they were so sold on uh, making sure that, that, that they could prevent – um, LSU's receiving core from from making big plays, um, and I think um, that was a good game plan, right? Like, because they were giving up some some big yardage on, on the ground from Jaden Daniels, but I mean, I think you take that um, every day of the week over over getting gashed on the back end of your defense by 
the speedy wideouts like Kayshawn and, and neighbors and, and the rest of those guys. So yeah, I thought that was that was one of the most surprising things. And that that's honestly why I thought um, you know, towards second to third quarter, why I thought FSU was was doing so well on defense because I mean they limited him so much. It, it was crazy. LSU is a very capable football team, but I don't think they're a very good football team, especially right now. I didn't think the coaching was very good from an offensive standpoint. They didn't dial up neighbors or Boutte enough early on to make them into a factor, in my opinion. You you don't have a guy of that caliber going into your season who has done it consistently throughout his career, and he's basically a non-factor for two and a half quarters. That just yeah, shouldn't be the case. You, the last, you the last drive they finally did, like – like force the issue a little bit. I think it was the last drive. It was definitely in the second half. They could start moving him in motions and like, okay, like that, that's what you do for him. Uh, LSU's defensive up front, as good as advertised, even with Mason Smith going down, they're very capable up front. They're going to give teams some trouble. Linebackers didn't overly impress me. I didn't expect them to going into the game and their secondary is good, but not great. FSU challenged it and they won plenty. And that's, that's an area where FSU traditionally in recent years has not had a whole lot of success. I think it speaks to a number of factors for the Seminoles, which is better people playing the positions, better quarterback throwing the ball in the sense of him being comfortable making such plays. But FSU also went after that secondary and had success. They put up 260 for a reason in the year in a game where they weren't trying to be overly aggressive through the year. Um, you know, I, I don't want to make too much of FSU winning by beating LSU because it's LSU and the name is LSU in the SEC. LSU is going to be a mediocre football team in 2022. But it's important that FSU won that game no matter what the final score was and how it played out in the end. And truthfully, I thought FSU vastly outplayed LSU for a vast majority of that game. They just didn't cash in when they had the opportunities. And to be fair, like LSU being a a seven-win team in the SEC is like that's still growth for Florida State to to legitimately outplay that caliber team. Like that doesn't happen last year. FSU should have won this game going away, and it wasn't particularly fluky. Uh, there were some fluky plays happen on both sides, uh, but I thought FSU was in a much better position to uh, FSU was in a great position to win by 14, 17 points. Like that was very much so on the table where with LSU, like that was never, that was really never a, a factor. Um, it was, it was impressive. And I think it shows where Florida state has gone from a strength and development standpoint. Uh, the recruiting, I, for prep level still needs to get better for Florida State to take a, another jump forward, but the transfer portal really, really helped FSU out this offseason, and that was certainly certainly evident on Sunday. Just a good win. It was a win that you had to had to have. You know, you can't be the, the program that finds ways to always lose close games. You can't be the head coach. You have to kind of figure out how to win some of those close games against you know, teams that are more talented than you and that can allow you to start building some confidence. And that's where Florida State's at. They're they're two and oh. I think this is a team that's probably going to move forward with confidence. Chris mentioned earlier in the pod, uh, coming off the bye week, LSU or sorry, LSU, uh Louisville, it looks extremely vulnerable. Uh, Syracuse really laid it to them and that wasn't fluky. Like just Syracuse just really outplayed them. Uh so three no's potentially on the table. I want to get into I guess uh, how we look at this team now with the two and O start, but before we get to there, I want to focus on recruiting for a couple minutes because I I think this is a game that had massive implications uh, for recruiting standpoint with FSU as it tries to close on a few targets uh, as it has the national TV spotlight. Zach, you wrote about this earlier in the week, what a win for Florida state could mean on the recruiting trail. Now that Florida state Seminoles have one, uh, what, 
what do you take away and what are some of the feedback or some of the things that you're hearing about what FSU is doing with this, this win over LSU? Yeah. I mean, for a guy that was there, um, we noted him last week, Hiking Williams, five-star wideout out of in high school in, in Fort Lauderdale. He's FSU's number one target, regardless of position. That's my opinion. Uh, I think he is their top guy. Um, and, and he was there in person in FSU's allotted ticket section um, for recruits. Um, he, he was at, you know, in, in Florida State gear doing the chop. Um, and, and he loved it. Uh, Brendan reached out um, to, to Hikeem's camp and got a quote from him. We're looking to get more from him um, maybe later today. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was huge. Uh, and, and to show, I think the most important thing that they showed to recruits is that they're not a one-dimensional offense, right? We saw in the first game, they rushed three guys for 100 yards each. And this second game against a much better opponent, they completely changed their offensive, you know, scheme to to work around, you know, their strengths and LSU's weaknesses. Um, and and we saw Jordan Travis complete a bunch of passes um, in that intermediate level, which is not something we really saw at all last year. Um, and if we did, it was not consistent. So, um, and then they had the big plays. They they had they had the explosives to to Pokey. Um, the, those two passes show. You know, a guy like Hiking Williams that he can come in as a clear wide receiver one for a team like Florida State and be that dude. Um, and I think it's the proof of concept that FSU's needed for so long, especially at the receiver position, because they've struggled to recruit that position. Part of that is, I'm sure, part of that's you know some lack of efficiency from the coaching staff in recruiting that position. But it's also the proof of concept on the field. Um, and I think. This game just just helps so much. I'm not saying that this game lands you hiking Williams, but man, does it help um, as, as you try to battle teams like Texas A&M, Georgia, Miami, and others who are obviously you know going to have probably pretty good seasons in their own right. Um, another guy I want to note. I'm going to drop something on the site um, in a little bit. It'll probably be up by the time you see this or listening to this podcast. But offensive lineman DJ Chester, he's a four star out of the state of Georgia. He's currently crystal balled. 100% of his crystal balls are, are for LSU. I think it's only one prediction, but um, LSU is definitely involved there. And they were seen as, I guess, the favorite at that time. I think it was towards the end of the summer. Um, but he tuned into the game and he was one of the first guys to to give his reaction to me following the game. Um, and, and he loved what he saw. He loved what he saw from the offensive line. I actually did a full story with him. You'll see it on all 24-7 just about the game, his recruitment, um, and kind of what's next. He's scheduled two visits to Florida State. He'll be at the Boston College game unofficially. Um, that was originally scheduled to be an official visit. But FSU's working towards um, trying to do most of their officials with recruits after the season or li- as late as possible. Um, and, and DJ has more in-season officials to other programs that I outlined in that article. Um, so the, the the other visit will be probably sometime in December. That's That's when he said he rescheduled it for. He's a guy that I think they they they're in a great spot for, and this game only helped them um, even more. Um, there are a few other prospects. Damari Brown is a top two four seven defensive back out of South Florida. He was also a guy that that almost immediately responded to me when I was reaching out for guys' reactions of the game. Um, he said he loved what he saw. I was told he called members of the coaching staff, um, kind of like you know recruiting assistants um, during the game, and was just kind of hyped about what he saw. I think LSU was involved with him at some point, uh, former fashion. Miami's viewed as the biggest threat. 
but I think FSU will have a shot at uh, landing him eventually down the line if they can get him for an official, which I think is likely. Um, those are the three guys I want to note. There's other guys. We have a full reaction story on those 24 seven um, from the game that you can go read. There was like 20 plus recruits that reacted. So, um, it, I mean, it was the easiest one I've done in my time here of trying to get guys to react. Sometimes it's hard when it's a, a game against Duquesne, right? Not everyone's tuned into that, but everyone was tuned into this and they love what they saw, especially guys that were uncommitted to. If you're a five-star wide receiver, whether you're Hakeem Williams or I, I, I think Jalen Brown was supposed to be there. He's an LSU commitment. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're a five-star wide receiver and, and you're watching one team have a six-year wide receiver get schemed open to the tune of 100 yards and another one with a day one draft pick be held to just two catches for 20 yards and then erase everything on a social media account LSU related. Allegedly, I didn't see that. Just saw people talking about it on Twitter in the message board. Um, you have some recruiting ammunition there for Florida State, which is nice. Yeah, this, this staff hasn't had a whole lot to sell other than than hope and vision. And, and this is an example of being able to sell uh, a quantifiable result and to, to show, hey, this is what we can do. Uh, when, when things are right for us. So important. Uh, Chris, do you have anything to add on uh, the LSU uh, win for Florida State on the recruiting trail? No. I mean, I think we'll see long-term if there's a positive effect. I would say the only thing is proof of concept is becoming more and more abundantly clear, and that's important. One other recruiting topic, not as positive, unfortunately, for Florida State, and that's Rod Kearney going dark on social media, stripping all of his Florida State stuff, uh, the, the offensive line commitment, four-star prospect. We all like him a ton, a lot of really good things and, and uh, good stuff to his film in terms of just power and athleticism, body control, all there. Uh, he was at the Florida game the previous day against Utah. Uh, nice red zone offense there, Utah. Uh, <laughs> unbelievable. Uh all of the all of the Florida State stuff has gone from social media. Got Billy Napier uh, following Rising Spear on Twitter. Billy followed me shortly after FSU uh, beat out uh, Florida for Lucas Simmons. So I think Billy does a little social trolling just based on the follows. He's letting you know he's keeping an eye on you. Zach, you dropped a crystal ball as a a swip. A, a swatch pick? What a sweat! I think my I think I just had. Good a God, Sinone, you have butchered this right. moment. Jesus, flip pick. flip pick. I put in a prediction um, for Rod Kearney to flip to UF. I don't think that the flip is imminent, but I do think that Rod Kearney could be stepping away from his Florida State commitment um, in the near future. That's just what I've learned over talking to people around the program and from other programs um, over the past few days. Yeah, it all started with that, with his attendance for the Utah game. Um, he loved what he saw. Apparently, he did an interview with, with the Swamp Two Four Seven site. Um, but yeah, man, I like he, he already scheduled. He's already scheduled to be back at UF this weekend. Um, it, it seems like it's trending that way. But I don't think UF's the only team involved. Georgia, I was told, is also a team trying to get him on campus. They've been in communication with him often. Um, and one thing to note, Florida State isn't out of this recruitment yet. Um, obviously, he hasn't decommitted yet, so I don't want to say that. But if, if he does decommit, he's not, they're not out of it yet. They still they have not burned their official visit with Rod Kearney. He committed um, before even using an official. So, um, yeah, he'll be, 
I, I think there's a good chance that, that he could um, official the FSU, even if he does decommit, um, especially since he has a strong relationship with Alex Atkins. But yeah, not looking good right now to keep him in the class at the very moment. And if Kearney was to jump ship, FSU has DJ Chester is a target that we have mentioned. Chester is a target regardless of whether or not Kearney is in the class. I think a guy it could impact is maybe a Chris Otto, Christopher Otto from Key West. I think Otto is a guy that they maybe ramp it up a little bit with if they're looking at a next target. Otto was a kid they had at Seminole Showtime. They've offered him. They like him. He could play a multitude of positions. He could actually play on both sides of the ball on the defensive line or the offensive line. Uh, he's someone I think FSU, if they need to go on to a next target, he is quite possibly the guy that becomes a little bit more of an increased interest individual. Last thing I want to talk about, fellas, is how we look at FSU's season outlook, what it could be for the Seminoles after beating LSU and starting 2-0. Chris mentioned earlier, first time FSU's been 2-0 since 2016. My first year at Knowles 24-7. It's been it's been a while, and that two and zero did not feel as good as this two and zero. It was the uh, having to come back from behind against Ole Miss, and then I think it was the sloppy USF game as the next one, and then uh, no, that was Charleston Southern. And Derwin James got hurt for the year. So yeah, to my to my point, this two and zero does feel a lot better than the last two and zero for Florida State, and I think you can see the signs as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, like the growth, the climb, incremental progress is occurring right in front of us. What does that mean for this current season? I think we were all between six and seven wins for predictions. Uh, did we all have seven? I, I was right at seven. I had six. I can't remember if I went six or seven. I just know I had 6.75. When we did win, share, I think it was 6.99. I've nice. been pretty consistent at saying seven. I In our preseason prognostication one, I said I really felt like they could be an eight-win team. Yeah, I, I feel a little bit better about that today. I, I don't want to make too much of week one, both from an FSU perspective and a national perspective, but the ACC is certainly underwhelmed in week one. Uh, Louisville, who I've never been fully on board at thinking they're great, looked putrid. Um, NC State looked wholeheartedly beatable, but I think that may have been somewhat a week one letdown for those guys. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to see how they bounce back, but that's one of those games that's obviously interesting. Clemson is still plenty talented, plenty good. Georgia Tech still plenty awful. Um, Florida is capable, but I also don't think they're great. Utah easily could have won that game as well, but they did not. And it does matter who does win in the end. Um, so I'm interested. I think the ceiling is a little bit higher. Obviously FSU is going to have to have injury luck. There's going to have to be continual improvement. There's going to be areas where they have to become a more efficient, better team. But I do feel like that's the way they trend within a season. I do feel like FSU is a program that's a constantly developing bunch who gets better. So there are reasons for confidence. I feel a lot better about this 2-0 versus 2016, and I feel a lot better about what this FSU can do, team can do at Louisville versus what that one did at Louisville, <laughs> which, which was drive me to drink. So I, I'm feeling a lot better right now. Uh, Louisville 2016. A, a trip that we would like to forget in so many ways. We'll talk about that next week. We've talked about it before the podcast, but we're always getting new listeners. Also, shout out to everyone who came up and said hi. Uh, in New Orleans, I know Chris had had people recognize him, say hi, and say they're big fans of On the Bench. I appreciate people coming up to me saying it as well. We we do thank you for your your listenership, and it does not a uh, it's not lost on me that that you guys are passionate about not just Florida State but this quirky little podcast that we do. So, I legitimately thank you. It was nice to meet some of you in person. Uh, Zach, are you changing after you 
picked FSU to lose by like 40 points. Are you changing the way you view this program and this this team now? Hmm? I'm pro- I'm at seven wins now. I think this is one of the, the games, obviously, I predicted them to lose. Um, so that's my prediction for now. I think I think if they go in and beat Louisville, I could go up to eight, like pretty handily. Like I like that start three and oh, like I, I would have not predicted that in any well, circumstance. Like that's crazy. Yeah, um, I thought I thought they would be underdogs for both, and they were an underdog against LSU, but I think I had them losing that just the win share probability. Uh and before the game, I thought they would lose by three or four points. Uh in Louisville, I had them as uh, a sub uh, 50% uh, win probability. I think it's somewhere in the 40s. So I had them losing both those games. I thought one and two was more likely than than two and one. But now two and one is the absolute worst you can do in your first three. Uh, and I think Florida State will now go to uh, the home of, of Bourbon uh, as a favorite i think lsu or i keep saying LSU. i can't wait for lsu to no longer be on the mind i keep wanting to call fsu lsu keep calling lsu fsu keep calling louisville lsu because of the l i'm over it i'm tired of you lsu you're more Brian scrambled Kelly. than my eggs it's not funny at all um but i i think louisville just looks entirely vulnerable they go to ucf this week that'll probably be a tough contest last year was a, a tough game at louisville uh ucf almost won probably should have won it i think ucf will be better this year and it was last year, although Louisville just looks really inept. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to, I guess, what what we think about Ellis. Or, oh, my God, I almost did it again. It's time to end this podcast, I think. My brain is front. <laughs> Louisville looks entirely vulnerable, is my point. And so with that in mind, like, I think that Florida State has a legitimate chance to go 3-0. and That certainly raises everything. Like, if you start 3-0 and and you thought that FSU was probably going to lose its two of those – first three games of the season uh, and for me like that's what i thought was going to happen and i had fsu at about seven wins then yeah like all of a sudden eight or nine is realistic and that totally changes everything so, all right so tonight midnight 75 percent off no longer available once midnight passes so hop on that if you have not 75 percent off for an entire year we're pretty much giving it away get after that for brendan sinone zach who needs a launchage and myself have a good day. A, a what? A lozenge. A lozenge. You know what a lozenge is? <laughs> yeah, I should. I should get to know one soon. Yeah. <laughs> Stick in the landing. of sports mixed with your pop culture along with humor and celebrity interviews your earbuds are enjoying the rich eisen show dan orlovsky are you still a Jaden daniels is the best quarterback available in the draft guy i think the three things that make it stand out for me are number one i think his ball placement versus man coverage is the best in the draft every quarterback in the nfl is accurate he's got the best on tape number two most transferable stuff to the nfl and then i think the third thing is pocket peace search for the rich eisen show on youtube or wherever you listen